Good morning, everybody. It's nice to be back in Orange County. Um, I'm happy to introduce the speaker. I just want to let you know that on the way down, I uh, we were both informed electronically that I would be doing the introduction. So I asked Jeremy how he would like to be introduced, and he changed the subject, <laughs> which means he does not necessarily endorse the contents of this introduction. Um, Jeremy is a native of Toledo, Ohio. I met him in college. We were college roommates at Harvard University, where he majored in linguistics um, and consistently refused to get involved in the administrative leadership of Hillel, determined as he was to make Aliyah. Um, one of his uh, footnote claims to fame, he had a Garin, a group of people who were prepping for Aliyah to Israel. Um, and he allowed me to accompany him to the Garin meetings. At that same meeting, Arnold Eisen, who is now the Chancellor of JTS, was accompanying Ace Levine to those meetings. I have pointed out to Chancellor Eisen that I successfully delivered my Garin member to the State of Israel, and his Garin member is now living with him in New York. So in terms of success for the Jewish people, I'll let you measure that yourself. Um, Jeremy has been living in Israel since college. He was a member of Kibbutz Keturah, which is a very sandy place in a very hot part of Israel. Uh, but he did a lot of interesting things there. He then moved to the north of Israel. He's one of the founding leaders of the Heschel Center, which does work on environmental ethics and Jewish ethics, really cutting edge stuff. He has a doctorate from Hebrew University in, I believe, cultural anthropology. and. Uh, and is not going to be speaking to us about any of those things. <laughs> but he has had a lifelong interest in language. And he has done some really productive and creative thinking about things that can only be unleashed in Hebrew and ways that American Jews might gain access to some of the nuance of Hebrew. And that, I believe, is what he's going to be speaking of today. So please welcome my college roommate and dear friend, Jeremy Benstein. Thank you, Brad. <coughs> um, I didn't remember that about Arnie and Ace, so, so I'll have to check in about that. Um, it's a pleasure to be here, and thank you, Ari, for the invitation. Um, as Brad mentioned, um, my day job, as it were, is at the Heschel Center in Tel Aviv, uh, where we do work promoting sustainability in Israel. Um, but I won't say more about that, but uh, you can find out more at, uh, at uh, heschel.org.il on the internet if you're interested. Um, and, uh, and as Brad mentioned, and he said, when, I, when we got to know each other and, and uh, as roommates at college, I was indeed studying linguistics, so I do have uh, uh, somewhat of a formal background in that. Um, but I think about um, my connection to Hebrew more in terms of my making Aliyah to Israel um, and thinking about the many reasons why I wanted to move to Israel after feeling very at home there, spending what, what what's called now a, a gap year between high school and college uh, on the Mahon program in Jerusalem, um, and thinking that uh, what I really loved about Israel is to live in a Hebrew-speaking society. There was something that, that was uniquely special about that, and also uniquely um, unifying, or um, there's so many controversies today surrounding Israel, um, uh, political um, security and others, I don't have to tell you about that. Um, and, uh, and so when I think about one of the, the single most 
amazing, world-appreciated, uncontroversial successes of the Zionist movement. It has been the revival of the Hebrew language, and it is, it is studied around the world, from, from Wales to Aborigines in Australia, about how do you take a language that was not being spoken or was considered endangered in some way and, and make it into the, the completely up-to-date, vibrant language of, uh, of a national community. And so Israel is indeed in, in, at the forefront of that, as it is in, in, in other fields as well. Um, and once I started thinking about this, um, I, uh, I realized that uh, as opposed to, um, to the States, for instance, where language columns are very common in, uh, in newspapers, William Sapphire in the New York Times and things like that, there was no, there were four uh, English language um, uh, publications in Israel, and none of them had anything about Hebrew. And so I um, modestly suggested myself to the editor of Haaretz in English uh, to write a column, and she loved the idea. And so I did that for about a year and a half, um, and realized that um, there was actually a lot of material here for not only just a book, which I'm working on, on finishing, um, but a whole, a whole project. I realized that when people come to Israel, for instance, rarely do they engage in anything connected to Hebrew. Like if you're on a short trip, if you're on birthright or on a mission or things like that, you learn do, do something about history, about politics, even about nature and the environment, um, but not about Hebrew. And my, my sense was that Hebrew as a language is usually seen as kind of an all or nothing sort of investment, right? If you're not gonna put in several thousand hours to actually gain fluency in a language, then you're not, there's no, um, you don't have a framework for actually trying to gain deeper appreciation of, what's, of, of what that language is all about. And I realized that for, especially for the sort of non-Hebrew speaking uh, part of American Jewry, which is unfortunately the majority, um, there are very few outlets. I mean, Hebrew on the one hand, and this is one of my, my key questions, on the one hand it is Lashon uh, HaKodesh, it's the holy tongue, it's uh, what we talk what we talk to God in, and what God spoke to us in, speaks to us perhaps, um, and, uh, and so that is one type of language, one type of interaction with the language. Many people, I remember teaching, I was a Hebrew school aide when I was in you know, ninth grade in Toledo, Ohio, and helping kids learn how to read the letters, right? Learn how to actually sort of open up a prayer book and be, actually, be able to say the words, not understand what they mean, um, which is sort of another story. I remember making Aliyah with some friends and, and uh, as graduate became more competent in Hebrew, so there were some, we had been in, in Young Judea, the youth movement together, and there were, you know, we, uh, tfilot, there were services there at conventions and at summer camp, and there were some friends who said, wow, it's amazing, now I, I speak some Hebrew so I understand what the prayers say. Um, and it's just, it's just incredible, it's great. And other people saying, yeah, now I, I understand what the prayer is saying. Oh, God, now I know what they mean. That's crazy. Um, so different, different responses once you actually learn the language. Um, uh, a, so there are th both of those sides. And it, um, it, uh, this became sharpened for me, as I said, as I start getting more and more into this about sort of the cultural uh, facets or the cultural, even the cultural baggage of Hebrew as a language. Um, uh, and as a Jewish language, and I'll talk about that in a second, um, uh, I began uncovering more and more controversies about how to understand the role of Hebrew both in Israel and in the larger Jewish world. Um, and uh, story is told of um, uh, a, an older woman on a bus uh, in Israel, an Israeli woman, uh, with her, her uh, teenage Israeli son, and she's speaking to him in Yiddish. 
And he responds to her in Hebrew. And she goes back to him and says, um, uh, you know, speak, speak to me in Yiddish. And if you speak Yiddish, you're probably better off than I am. I, don't, I just have a few words that filtered through my parents using it as a secret language. So when you use a language as a secret language, you never, you know, the kids don't pick it up. So I never learned Yiddish. Um, but she said, you know, and, uh, and a, a man sitting next to her said, why, we're in Israel, why are you insisting that he speak in Yiddish? And she responded by saying, well, I don't want him to forget that he's a Jew. <laughs> um, so that, that, to my mind, almost encapsulates some of these issues around, uh, around this question of Hebrew. So Hebrew, as I said, it's Lashona Kodesh. It's a language of prayer and study, which makes it old. It's ancient, um, uh, going back to, obviously, before the Bible. Um, it has those trappings of holiness, and one of the original meanings of Kedushah is something that's set apart, something that's not, it's contrasted with, uh, with daily use. So to call a language holy is almost to say we shouldn't speak it, we shouldn't have it involved in daily use. And in fact, when, when Maimonides um, wrote about, about Hebrew, he wrote, he wrote a beautiful Hebrew in his Mishnah Torah. Um, his other philosophical works he wrote in Arabic, actually. Um, but when he spoke about uh, about Hebrew, he said the special thing about Hebrew is that it doesn't have any dirty words, um, which was interesting. Um, no curse words and no words for uh, sexual organs and, and acts uh, and things like that. Um, and for those of you who don't know Israeli Hebrew, that is no longer the case. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, some of them taken from uh, surrounding languages, Arabic, Yiddish, etc. Um, so, uh, and of course, Hebrew in that way was our own very personal, private, uh, tribal language. Um, so that's one side. Also, by the way, I'll just mention, there's a gender issue here as well. It, it's not, uh, it wasn't uh, for no reason that uh, Yiddish became called the mamaloshin, right? The, the language, uh, not just mother tongue in the sense of what you learn at birth, but the language of, of the mamas, of, of mothers that uh, for many years, of course, there was cheder, and uh, Jews had to learn how to daven and how to you know, study and, and things like that. But it was mainly male Jews, and very few female Jews from the end of the Mishnaic period, when Hebrew stopped to be a vernacular spoken language, up until the end of the 19th century, very few female Jews learned Hebrew at all, except for a few words here and there. It was really, if it was in the European Ashkenazi world, so it was Yiddish, and in other, other uh, Jewish communities had their own uh, internal Jewish languages, and I'll also come back to that in a second. So when we look at Hebrew today in Israel, um, it's not holy in, in those senses. In other words, it's vernacular, it's secular, it's daily. Uh, it is a language to be used for all purposes like any other language in the world. Um, uh, it's not so much how we, obviously we, people, you know, there's still, uh, using the Sidur and, and, and learning Mekorot, learning sources in Israel, but it's, not, it's much less the language that people speak only to God in, or that we see it as something that God speaks to us in, but it's the language that people speak to each other in. Uh, Israeli Jews and Israeli Jews and Arabs, um, uh, it being the, you know, one of the two national languages of Israel, Arabic is also an officially recognized language, um, so Jews and Arabs uh, speak to each other in Hebrew. There are several Israeli novelists. Uh, Anton Shamas was, I think, the first big one, but also uh, uh, more well-known now is Saeed Kashua, if you've ever had read his work, which is published in, in English. Um, but he is a, uh, has a weekly Hebrew language column and writes only in Hebrew, does not write in Arabic. Um, so it's, it's a whole other ballgame. I mean, it's no longer just our own private little tribal language. It's a language of a, uh, a multicultural, multicultural nation. Um, and so, to my mind, when you take all these, 
all these um, uh, 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 dialectics or contradictions of that it's old and new and it's holy and it's secular and it's written, you know, literary and religious and it's also spoken in vernacular and it's also tribal and it's global. So it's not only a question of, okay, how do we understand the language? It's how do we understand ourselves? How do we understand Jews? And, and um, uh, it was uh, uh, the great anthropologist Levi-Strauss who said that uh, in writing about food um, in the raw and the cooked, he said, food is good to think with. That the symbolic nature, I think about it now coming with Pesach coming up when we talk about all the different you know, edible symbols of the holiday. Uh, but in this case, language, or the, specifically Hebrew, is not only good to think in, we of course think in language, but it's good to think with. In other words, it's a, it's a prism to look at our Jewish identity and how it's changing in the changing world around us. Um, and one other fascinating example of that is uh, the city of Tel Aviv. Um, and not so much everything that's going on in Tel Aviv, although that's also clearly relevant, and it was, has become known as the first Hebrew city, uh, which is very very different from being, it's not the first Jewish city, right? It's the first Hebrew city. Um, do you know where the name Tel Aviv comes from? Anybody know the origin of the name? Okay, so literally the two words, Okay, yeah, so the first word tel, we all know as, uh, I think it's a common, not just Hebrew word, right, for archaeological site, and aviv, of course, means spring. Um, sorry? They couldn't call it the new old land. Okay, so it's, it's the name of a book. Um, it's the name of a book that we English speakers know as, uh, or the German speakers as well, Alt Neuland, okay? Uh, uh, Herzl's uh, sort of um, almost science fiction uh, utopian novel of how he envisioned uh, the state of the Jews, uh, which he called Alt Neuland, which means Old New Land. And when it was translated into Hebrew, um, shortly after it was written, um, in the early 20th century, uh, translated by Nachum Sokolov, another great Zionist thinker and activist, he chose the name Tel Aviv to encapsulate that idea of old and new. Tel, the archaeological uh, uh, kind of layered site representing the past, and Aviv, the spring, the renewal, etc. So it's a lovely uh, uh, choice, a poetic choice to, 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 to encapsulate that meaning of Alt Noi. But it doesn't stop there because he didn't invent that phrase. That phrase appears in the Bible, in the book of Ezekiel, where uh, the prophet is uh, on, at a place called Tel Aviv, which is in Babylonia, right, in the Babylonian exile on the, on the shores of the river uh, Kvar, Kvar. Um, and, um, uh, and so it's interesting that that phrase, which isn't explicated, I don't know if, if, if that was meant to be any kind of, any of that symbolism that Sokolov uh, built on, but that was in the exile. So to take a name that was a place in the Babylonian exile and to make it a symbol of Jews rerooting themselves in Israel is already interesting. Um, but that doesn't stop there, because why did Herzl choose the name Altneuland in the first place? It's a lovely, it's a lovely image, Altneu, uh, old and new together. He probably took it from the name of a shul in Prague, which is called the, the Altneu Shul. Okay, now why was that called the Altneu Shul? Um, it's because when it was built in 1270, um, it was the new shul, because there were older shuls in Prague. One of them, which was even older than the Altnoy shul, was only torn down at the end of the 19th century. So now the Altnoy shul is really one of the oldest shuls in all of Europe. Um, but that, it was called the Neuschul because it was new compared to the older ones previously. But then they built 
a shul after that, calling it the new, the, another, uh, also calling it the Neu Shul, but so the first Neu Shul became the Alt Neu Shul, which is the old Neu Shul, because now we have a new Neu Shul. Um, um, but uh, that's probably indeed the historical reason, but Jews never stop with just the pshat, with the historical reason in explaining things, because there is a midrash about where that name Alt Neu came from, and it's not from the Yiddish or the German Alt Neu, it's from Hebrew. Okay, if you know Hebrew, um, there's a ceremony before wedding called the Tnaim. So Al Tnai in Hebrew means unconditioned that. Um, so if you say that with a little bit of a Yiddish accent, you get Alt Noi. So the Alt Noi show unconditioned that, and the story was that they were there in the exile until the condition, until the Messiah comes, that they would, they would be, in fact, there was this sort of mystical story about one of the stones having come from the temple and it was being held in, uh, in perpetuity there until the Messiah would come and then it would go, be taken back to Israel. So. All of that is encapsulated in the name Tel Aviv of old and new and exile and return, uh, and uh, and um, and I think it finds itself it finds its expression in in the language itself. Um, actually, I actually have a handout here, and I'm going to pass it on in just a minute. Um, I just wanted to um, raise another question, which is one of the things that I found fascinating in uh, in kind of uncovering these like like a tell, uncovering these layers uh, of the language itself, is. Um, and I, I, uh, I found an article by a linguist who I very much admire, a guy named Uzi Ornan. Um, he's 94. Um, he started being a linguist, living in a, in a DP, a displaced person camp in Cyprus before making Aliyah um, in, uh, after, after the Holocaust and uh, before the founding of the State of Israel. Um, and um, and he, has a, he has an article called Hebrew is not a Jewish language. And I just thought, what? Seriously? How can that be? Like, when you talk about, when you have the idea of a Jewish language, and there are many Jewish languages, more than two dozen, if I don't, you know, we know Yiddish, and, and many of us have heard of uh, Ladino, but there's Judeo-Arabic, and there's uh, Malayam, which is a Judeo-Indian language of the uh, Indian subcontinent, and again, do, every place where Jews went, they formed their own sort of creoles of the surrounding language together with Hebrew. So in fact, one of the definitions of a Jewish language is the extent to which it incorporates Hebrew into it. So how could you possibly claim that Hebrew is not a Jewish language? And uh, one of the reasons why Uzi Ornan uh, made this claim uh, is because of the way the word Hebrew has been used since before the founding of the State of Israel. And uh, this may, I don't know, if, I'm curious to hear how this, uh, how this sounds to you. And I, I mentioned before that I'm working on a project and, and, and finishing a manuscript for a book, and I was actually thinking of not doing talks like this until I actually have the book, and then I could do a book tour and actually sell the book. Um, but actually, I realized that what I really need to do is, is get feedback from people before I actually you know, finish the manuscript to see that I'm actually um, you know, framing the issues in the right way. So I'm very curious here, both uh, during and, uh, and afterwards, um, what you think of this whole, uh, this whole approach. But, um, uh, but he said, um, uh, so, it's, so the way that Hebrew has been used since before the founding of the State of Israel, which is a, uh, a descriptor, an adjective, to contrast with Jewish, right? When you talk about Hebrew culture in Israel, you're talking about a very specific kind of culture that, first of all, is secular, and uh, very, it's our own, it's the own Israeli culture, but open to the world. Uh, it's um, when things are labeled as Jewish 
in Israel, it often means that there's something, some trappings of religiosity, uh, or it's more connected to halakha, or things like that. And so when they talk about a vision of a Hebrew republic, it's to say a secular uh, Israeli republic, and that is counterpoised or contrasted with something that's diaspora and therefore more Jewish. So in, in, in Israel, when things are labeled as Hebrew, it is to say they're ours, they're, they're rooted in that land and not connected to those uh, sort of more Jewish periods of, of history. Um, I don't know if you've heard this characterization made, but it was often said that uh, secular Zionism made a little leap. They said they skipped from the Tanakh to the Palmach, um, right? That's trying to sort of read out diaspora Jewish history uh, as being irrelevant because it happened someplace else. It wasn't our history. It, was, it happened in the lands of others uh, where they controlled things. And our history it only happens where we control uh, the society. And that's, of course, in ancient Israel or in, or in modern Israel. So... So in many respects, this idea of just, of, of just using the word Hebrew uh, to describe things is something that is meant to imply not Jewish or not connected to that sort of Judaism. But Beruzi Ornan, actually, being a linguist, he had a, uh, he had a deeper point in his article, and he said that, um, and here I have to use, I'm trying to stay away from like technical linguistic terminology, but there's one word that I have to introduce, and that is uh, diglossia. Um, I don't know if you ever run across this in sort of common parlance, but um, we all know what bilingual means, right? When people speak, if you speak two languages, then you're, you're bilingual. It doesn't matter what the languages are, and it's a feature of a person if you know two languages or not. Diglossia, which sort of sounds like it could be similar because di is, is two and glossia is, is the meanings or the, uh, uh, the languages, but it's not a feature of a person necessarily, or, or not only, it's, it's, it's a feature of a community, a community that's diglossic. And there, it is a community where there are always at least two languages in play, often characterized as a high register and a low register. So for instance, um, you may be familiar with the situation of Arabic. Arabic has uh, fuscha, which is, uh, which is the uh, formal written Quranic Arabic, which is um, uniform across the Arab world. It is, it is a single language based in the Quran. And in fact, uh, most formal Arabic speaking, whether it be television newscasts or political speeches, is done in that language. And then every other, every, every Arab-speaking country has its own spoken dialect uh, called Amiya, which, um, uh, which varies greatly across the Arab world. And in fact, you know, um, Moroccans and Palestinians almost can't understand each other in terms of how different their Arabic-spoken colloquial languages are. So an educated Arab always has these two languages in his mind. They're both called Arabic, or sometimes they would be called, I don't know, Quranic and, 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 and Saudi, or Quranic and, and Moroccan. Um, but there are two, two levels in that way. The same is true if you've read, um, I just finished the uh, Neapolitan Quartet, the novels by Elena Ferrante, which is amazing yeah. literature. Um, and uh, it takes place in, in Italy, in Naples, and I, unfortunately, don't have Italian, so I could read it in the original, but in, in the translation, they're always talking about how some people are, are speaking Neapolitan, and uh, it was only the more educated ones who, who speak Italian. And I said, really? I don't know. Don't, don't all, all, all Italians speak Italian? It's something that, that I think, in, uh, to an American mind, it doesn't really register, this idea that there can be uh, different, different kinds of language that are used in different circumstances. So Uzi Ornan's point was that Jews have always been diglossic. One of the significant features of a Jewish identity has been this 
functioning in different languages. And it would be the high cultured languages, of course, literary, again, the Loshan Kodesh of the, the synagogue and the Beit Midrash. And again, the Jewish languages, and there might be more, I'm not saying they're limited to two. It can be multi-glossic in the sense that I'm sure most European Jews spoke, you know, had that Hebrew competence, and then the Yiddish for vernacular internal Jewish use, and then, of course, many spoke Polish or Russian or Ukrainian or the other surrounding non-Jewish languages. And those were all used in different circumstances for different reasons with different people. That's the whole idea of, uh, of diglossia, is that you, uh, you speak a type of, or a certain language or a type of language for particular purposes in particular contexts. And he said that was completely defining of what it meant to be a Jew and the role of Hebrew in that. Um, and Hebrew was, of course, again, the core holy language, but Yiddish literally is the Jewish language. So Yiddish means Jewish. Um, uh, just like the woman on the bus, right? That was the expression of Jewish identity. Um, and he said, Hebrew, referring to modern, contemporary, conversational, colloquial, spoken Hebrew in Israel, is not a Jewish language because it doesn't exist in a diglossic situation. Israeli use, use it for its everyday use. It's, if, if it had any Jewish trappings, it was only in a different cultural reality. Um, and I think he didn't relate to this question, but uh, he would say that most... American Jews are not diglossic either, um, in the sense that don't have these types of languages. Yiddish has been, you know, mostly lost, unfortunately, as well. Um, even more, more true of Ladino, of course. Um, and so, we have the one Jewish people, and if you just take the, the American Jewish community and the Israeli Jewish community, um, they no longer have that thing in common. Not just the language itself, but the diglossia, the the that almost uh, uh, kind of multi-dimensional depth of identity that comes with having these different languages. And so that is an impoverishment. Um, and many Jewish thinkers have been, uh, have been uh, relating to that, to the, uh, both to the loss of Hebrew in particular, uh, but, uh, uh, but in general, uh, that kind of flattening out of Jewish identity. Um, OK. Any questions or comments up until now? Yeah, please. So we are diglossic here in America. We, we're just different. We're diglossic in a different way than Israelis because we speak English, and some of us do Hebrew, and some of us have biblical Hebrew, right? Yeah, to those to the extent that you actually have some Hebrew, then you would you would have that in a situation. Although it's not a it's not in the English part of that is not really a Jewish language yeah. uh, to be spoken among Jews for colloquial purposes. Yeah, so it's different in that way. And the other piece, though, is that or just like, while while we're to, doing to this, I'll take so one. You can say Hebrew is really Israeli. And, Many people argue that being Israeli doesn't make you Jewish. In other words, we have this whole different being, and they can be Jewish. I mean, they can be born Jewish and be, be an Arab Israeli, by the way. But you can be a Jewish Israeli but not have anything in common with a Jewish person who's committed to Judaism in America because you're just Israeli. Same thing with the language. Yeah, exactly. So. Um, in fact, when do sort of um, values education in Israel, and sometimes there are questions that come up about how, you know, with, for an Israeli teenager, like I have, I have twin sons who are uh, uh, finished high school and on the verge of going into the army, and so if you ask the average secular Israeli high school senior, does he feel more in common with, uh, with an Israeli Druze, with the Druze population in Israel? They're um, nominally Arabs, although they don't really get along with Palestinians, and they serve in the Israeli army. And, um, Say, who do you feel closer to, an Israeli Druze, uh, you know, your age, or an American Jew? Um, and many of them will claim, well, the Israeli Druze, because they speak Hebrew and they're going to serve in the army with me, and what do I have in common with that American Jew? So, um, 
So yes, that is, uh, that is indeed uh, the case, that, um, that uh, being in Israel doesn't necessarily uh, make you automatically Jewish. And, uh, and the point I want to make is, uh, is that indeed, even though Hebrew, well, the question is, what is Hebrew, right? So I mentioned at the first top of the page here, it just shows a little bit of background of what I've already spoken about. Um, uh, and what I wanted to start with in looking at, it, at the text is, is, uh, is really a follow-up on that question. What, but I'll, I'll get to that in a second. You had a question here, too. Yeah. Just a quick one. You know, when I listen to Israeli talk radio or talk television, I hear a lot of English expressions being thrown in all over the place. Right. Is, is Hebrew becoming diglossic with English? Um, yeah, that wouldn't really be diglossic, but, um, uh, but many yeah, people, yeah. depending on your perspective about how language, living languages change and develop, some would say contaminated by English, um, others would say enriched by English, um, and uh, it's funny, we um, come uh, driving down here, Brad pointed out a tree, a blossoming tree, the Jacaranda, I think it was, um, and they said, oh, it looks like uh, the Hebrew, the Israeli tree, Klila Chorash, um, and not knowing enough botany to know if what I know in Israel is the same as what's going here in Southern California, he said, well, don't you have an app that translates, you know, this? And, and there are apps that do that, but what I said, what, there, what I do have an app for, which I thought was really interesting, the Hebrew uh, Language Academy, which is like the, um, what's it called, the uh, over uh, governing body of, of the Hebrew language, which officially kind of invents words or, or approves words or not, which nobody listens to, okay? I mean, it's, it's completely, uh, they usually just sort of uh, confirm that what's out, what's out there on the street is actually uh, acceptable or not. Um, but, uh, but so they put it on an app where you can put in, uh, if, you, if there's an English expression that, you're, you know, that you use, but there's a real Hebrew word for it, so it'll give you the Hebrew translation for the, what's called loazit, that, uh, that English language. But in that respect, I don't think um, Hebrew is any different than French or other languages where because of globalization and you know, commercial culture, all kinds of English expressions infiltrate and some stick and some don't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think there are, there are diglossic communities in the U.S., like the Spanish communities. Absolutely. And the black communities have a different language in the street, and they use this food and so on. Yeah, that, that's, exactly the, that's exactly the American example. Yeah. Um, uh, black English, or, or Ebonics, is, uh, is, is one of those. And, uh, and absolutely, for the Spanish community, where Spanish is a completely uh, colloquial language in a dozen countries around the world, but for uh, American Hispanics, it's a heritage language. I mean, it's one of their own, you know, it's sort of their own private or, you know, communal language of them as a minority culture here, yeah. Well, if the trend is to designate the term Hebrew to be a secular, to refer to a secular language from a particular country, then would the uh, uh, Torah Hebrew, would it be uh, um, a subdivision? You're still calling it Hebrew. Oh, okay, I will leave that hanging in the air because the next part is exactly uh, oh. is exactly designed to, to unpack that okay. question, that comment. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, when I was in Israel in the 80s the first time, we, in the Opan, they told us, uh, told us actually a song all about it, is there Yehuda in discovery, uh, making yes, modern uh, Hebrew words? Yeah, yeah, I was just wondering if you were, is that still, because he invaded the dictionaries and all the modern words, right? So is that something you were going to talk about or is that kind of? Well, yeah, it's going to come in here, the whole idea of the revival and, and the creation of words. But yeah, Eliezer Ben Yehuda was is a, an individual who continually uh, fascinates me. Um, uh, it's almost brought it up. I'll tell you an anecdote about the, the Ben Yehuda's song. life. He started to sing. It's just yeah. funny. I remember that. Yeah. No, it's still popular. You know, kind of pop song. Um, so he, um, 
it was it said that until uh, Ben Yehuda, um, people could speak Hebrew, or again, male Jews who went through a traditional Jewish education could speak Hebrew and communicate because. Indeed, between Jewish communities, like when Ashkenazim would communicate with Sephardim, especially like in Jerusalem of the old Yishuv, like the end of the 19th century, the common language they had was Hebrew, so, and, and, or letter writing in Hebrew and stuff. But they said, so Jews could speak Hebrew. After Eliezer ben Yehuda, they did speak Hebrew. And he was the one who, um, all the, many of the myths about him are true, that it really was uh, this kind of revolution that he single-handedly fomented, even until people joined, of course, and, but he was the one who actually got Hebrew to be spoken in schools, in kindergartens, and, which was amazing, because it was not the native language of any single person. That, and that's, that's one of the key claims here, which will tie into this next, this next um, section, which is he decided for people to speak Hebrew, it's not enough to write like literature like the Maskilim did, right? Haskalah has a whole body of Hebrew literature. They started writing in Hebrew, Hebrew novels. It was very biblical Hebrew. Um, and they, many of the major Maskilim didn't even believe that Hebrew should be spoken. They just said they wanted to bring Hebrew back, partially because some were already writing in Yiddish, and Yiddish, like many of the colloquial languages in the 19th, 20th, 18th and 19th centuries, were seen as not really languages. People, Jews at that time felt, well, Yiddish doesn't have a grammar because um, it's just this thing that we speak, which is, of course, as we know today, is impossible. All languages have grammar and, and um, etc. So, so uh, Ben Yehuda, when he decided, he convinced his wife, and I'm not sure exactly what methods he used to convince her, that they had to speak only Hebrew in home, at, at home. And when their son, uh, who later can known as Itamar Ben Avi, Ben Eliezer Ben Yehuda, Bet Yehud Ben Avi, um, a, he was the first native Hebrew-speaking person in the world for 2,000 years, which is kind of a mind-blowing concept. And in order, and, and, and let it be, not be no mistake, he's an amazing, Elias ben was amazing, he was a fanatic. I mean, he was uh, probably very difficult to live with. Um, and uh, and he, he forbade anybody from speaking other languages around his baby son. Itamar ben didn't speak until he was four. Um, <laughs> Uh, but when he did, he spoke Hebrew, um, and the legend, this part of the myth, I'm not sure is true, uh, his parents were, were fighting about something, possibly about the Russian lullabies that his mother used to sing in secret at night to his son, and, and it's that the father, Eliezer, was, was uh, up in arms about, because how can you, sit, you know, don't sing Russian to, to our Hebrew-speaking child? Um, but they, they, the myth is that his first words were, Abba, Ima, Tafsiku, Lehit, Lachem. Um, uh, which, which means stop fighting, his first words. But, he, but what's interesting linguistically about that is that's not how you actually say that. You would say in just a, a, a kind of oddity of the word for milchamah, for to fight, is lehilachem, nilchamim. It's, it's the nifal, if you know Hebrew grammar. But he put it into a, a, uh, the hitpa'el form because they're fighting with each other, uh, which shows that the first Hebrew child, his first words, were a creative, generative use of the forms of Hebrew that he was hearing. Okay, so, um, uh, but to get back to, to your question about sort of traditional religious Torah Hebrew as opposed to uh, conversational Hebrew, so um, there's a, an Israeli linguist who actually lives now in Australia. His name is Gilad Zuckerman, um, a very flamboyant guy. And in fact, I have to, I don't usually give footnotes in a, in a spoken uh, presentation, but this phrase, which I just love, is his phrase about is Hebrew mosaic, I mean, does it go back to Moses, or is it a mosaic, right, a composite of things, that's his, his little witticism. Um, and he wrote a book called Israelit Safa Yafa. Uh, Israeli is a beautiful language, right? And uh, um, 
a, specifically to, to document and prove his point that the Hebrew, that the language that contemporary Israelis speak should not be called by the same name even as those other, uh, that other registers of language. And, and his point, similar to Uzi Ornan's point about whether Hebrew is a Jewish language, but he, again, kind of a, 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 a particular linguistic perspective, he said that when you revive a language, and he said doesn't, he doesn't like to use the word revive because it implies that it was dead and it was brought back to life, it wasn't dead. Um, but he said when you re-vernacularize a language, right, when you make it a spoken language again, there were no native speakers who had that language in their head as their first and certainly not their only language. And so the, the, that re-vernacularization of Hebrew by primarily Ashkenazi Jews like Eliezer ben Yehuda at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, uh, was completely shaped and deeply informed by the languages that were their first languages, which were uh, Slavic or Germanic languages, Yiddish, together with Russian, Polish, and German. Um, and he said, if Hebrew had been revived, right, re-vernacularized by Yemenite Jews, we would be speaking a completely different Hebrew. Okay? Um, and that's why he says it's different than the fact that we, we call English, we use the word English to refer to what we speak in America, what they speak in Great Britain, and what Chaucer wrote in, right? That's all English. And he said, not because it's similar or because it's, it's mutually uh, comprehensible, because it's not, you can't really read Chaucer these days, um, but because there was an unbroken chain of native speakers and it was an organic development of a living language. And Hebrew does not have that. Um, the unbroken chain of native speakers speaking a living language. And so what was invented, you don't see it so much in the words, right? The words, again, except for the English ones that slipped in, or Yiddish, or Russian, or Arabic, I mean, there are a lot of, you can identify the foreign uh, lexemes, right, the words in the language, but, um, but he said it's more you see it in the patterns, right? If you learn syntax and you see how Hebrew syntax was, and, and this is what we'll, I'll look at in just a second on the sheet, um, that we don't, we don't use a Semitic syntax, Semitic language, uh, st sentence structure. Um, it's much, much closer to, to Yiddish and Russian. Um, and so that, that's just, I mean, now I'm not going to go too much into the technical side of whether it's accurate to say that you can't really call it Hebrew or not. I'm just saying that that's a view that's out there to emphasize just how distinct Hebrew is from uh, uh, contemporary spoken Israeli Hebrew is from traditional written literary religious Hebrew. And um, and as a sort of a proof of that, um, what I have here on the page, uh, if you look at the front of the page with the, the Hebrew columns going across, um, this, these are, this is a Xerox from uh, an edition of the Bible called, um, called Tanakh Ram. Ram is just the publisher. Um, and what it is, is a translation of the Bible into Hebrew. Okay. One of the, the, one of the claims that Gilad Zuckerman uh, always faced was, he said, well, how can you say it's a different language? We can read the Bible and understand it. And he, uh, he got this mainly from you know, professors and, and newscasters and people who were in their 50s, 60s, and 70s. And um, those people don't often realize, like uh, myself, for instance, I have parents of, uh, as I said, twin boys who are now uh, almost 19. Um, and Israelis growing up today, if they just have to open the Bible, they can't understand. It, it, it went from... Hebrew used to be a little, biblical Hebrew used to read a little bit stilted, a little bit formal. And so if you're growing up in Israel in the 50s, it was probably like reading Shakespeare. And if you grow up in Israel now, it's like reading Chaucer. Okay, in the sense of how more distant the contemporary Israeli, again, not just, not just spoken language, not just street slang, I'm talking about, you know, contemporary literate Hebrew is from biblical Hebrew. 
Okay, and so he says the only reason why Israelis can open the, the Bible and read it is because they have 10 years of instruction and have to pass a matriculation exam in Hebrew to go, in, in, in Bible. He said it would be much more, you would be much more successful in teaching Israeli Hebrew if you taught it as a foreign language. I'm sorry, if you taught Bible as a foreign language. It were written in a different language and they had to learn that language. You never, when you study Bible in an Israeli school, you never learn the language because it's assumed you know it. It's Hebrew. It's the same thing. They don't realize that the sentence structure uh, is different. There are many words that even though some of which aren't familiar at all, but some of which are, uh, you think you know what they mean, but then you, you don't really know what they mean because they have a different meaning in, in contemporary Hebrew. So it just I brought this here, and I don't know, um, for, for the more Hebraically proficient among you, uh, this might have more to say, but I just want to give you a sense of the difference in music. So I just, I was actually going to take a piece from Parashat Shavua, but there wasn't anything good in Tazuriyam and Sora uh, going on uh, thematically or Hebraically. So I went back a little bit um, to uh, just a section from Genesis. But really, you can open this book up. It's, it's printed like a Bible, just with two columns of text. One is the biblical original, and the other is the contemporary liter literary Hebrew that it's translated into, as it were. Um, and uh, so, okay, so... so Reading on the right-hand side, the, the title is the Mabul, okay? So it's, this is the flood story, uh, the beginning of, the, uh, of Noah and the, and the ark and the flood. So from Genesis. Um, and the right-hand side, labeled in Hebrew letters there, Hevav Zayn Chet, is corresponding to the left-hand side, 5, 6, 7, 8. So the right-hand side is the original biblical Hebrew, and the left-hand side of that is the uh, contemporary Israeli Hebrew. So just to read a few verses, it says... Vayar Hashem ki rabba ra'at ha'adam ba'aretz v'chol yetzer machshavot libo rakara kol hayom. Vayinachem Hashem ki asat ha'adam ba'aretz v'yitatzel el libo. Vayom Hashem emchet ha'adam asher barate me'al pnei adama me'adam ad behema ad remes v'ad of ha'shamayim ki nichamti ki asitim. V'noach matzachen v'ene Hashem. Okay, so that's the biblical. The translation is Okay. Again, if you don't understand the Hebrew, you might not get all the differences, but you can hear a little bit even of just the music of it. The syntax is different. Um, if you ever were in Israel and, light, and had a penchant for late night television, this is before there was more than one station and, and cable and things like that, then you, didn't, you weren't able to, not stop showing core, but you weren't able to enjoy late night television because the Israeli broadcasting system did not broadcast after 11.30 at night, and they always ended the day with a biblical verse called Sukkot Shalyom, Sukkot, as we used to call it. And there was this very stentorian voice reading the, the biblical. So that always, what, when I read this into a microphone especially, that's always what I remind myself of that, of that televised verse. But the other Hebrew sounds like you're reading almost, you know, not a children's book, but like just this very contemporary Hebrew thing. And again, it, it, I mean, it, for Hebrew learners, among you, it's a fascinating thing just to take apart, just to go, you know, take an hour and look at these three verses and just take apart all the differences uh, between them. But the fact is that Israeli students, there used to be a, you know, a, a high school Bible that you would buy for your class, you know, textbook, you know, for the classes, which had certain 
words, um, you know, uh, glossed at the bottom of the page. Uh, sometimes they called it casuto because the original one was done by casuto. The others weren't casuto, but it was called the casuto, right? You would use because the Israeli student needed some of those glosses. Again, the words were not so hard. But that, that's not even that, what I'm saying is that's not enough anymore, right? You need the whole translation, and there's a huge debate in Israel whether this should be acceptable or not. Should Israeli students officially use this? Which of course means that even if you say no, they are unofficially using it because uh, they want um, uh, the crib to know what this text is talking about when they can't understand it. Um, so that was just, that's just an example of uh, of why it is not crazy to talk about Hebrew not being a Jewish language and Israeli spoken language not being Hebrew and all these different cultural processes coming up as a result of the revival of the language into a spoken language. And, you know, when things are, are alive, they take their own course. They have, sort of have their own, uh, have their own agenda, as it were, in, in terms of the language. Yeah? Well, I don't understand Hebrew. Okay. But just from the sound of it, just from the, the musicality of it, it sounds like the uh, more religious Hebrew would... It, I wondered how much you were imitating that stentorian delivery because the other one sounds like a news report and it sounds more um, more clear and, and more direct and the other one seems to have like there's something behind it yet uh, wouldn't the, the modern Hebrew be based on also what was behind their uh, their uh, basis for being uh, literate. In other words, wouldn't they have relied on the overtones of the biblical Hebrew to have what they have? Another great question, which brings us to the next part of it. No, literally, I mean, that's exactly what I want to talk about. Um, uh, but yeah, uh, uh, first of all, I, I, I think I did probably consciously or unconsciously emphasize the difference in speaking. But it's also the case that when speak, people declaim Biblical Hebrew, there's a specific way to do it, right? You have to have, you have to really, like, to do it well, you have to, you know, people go to courses to learn how to just read out loud Biblical Hebrew to know the, uh, the vowel, exact vowel points and how you should say them and which letters are hard and which are soft and things like that. And I'm no expert, but I was, you know, again, trying, maybe trying to imitate that a little bit. And of course, you know, regular spoken Hebrew has, has less of that gravitas to it. Um, but as you say, the, uh, in fact, I didn't, I didn't read these quotes out loud, but the, the, a few sentences about what people have said about Hebrew I wrote here, I, I put here at the bottom, and uh, Gershom Sholem, the great scholar of Jewish mysticism, uh, wrote a letter to uh, Franz Rosenzweig about Hebrew, about what was happening with the secularization of Hebrew in Israel. Because, um, I don't know if you know, but Rosenzweig wasn't a big fan of the Zionist project. He thought that was sort of a step backward for the Jewish people. Um, I mean, he also didn't live to see the Nazis or, or other things like that, but he said culturally and spiritually, we've attained a kind of a level of, uh, of spirituality that putting us back into a, uh, you know, a, um, a bricks and mortar or a soil-based uh, society is not, is not what Judaism should be about. Um, and, uh, and, and, he, and part of that was his philosophy of language as well, that, uh, that putting Hebrew back into a spoken secular vernacular environment is not progress for that language that has achieved a, a, a great spiritual kind of, uh, uh, of level. And so Sholem wrote about that, and I don't have enough to, uh, uh, to, uh, to go into it. It's, really, it's a page and a half, but it's, it's fascinating. And he talks about how that you, know, you shouldn't, um, 
there are different ways of interpreting actually what he wrote, but one, one reading is that you, know, you shouldn't worry too much about whether the Zionists are going to succeed in secularizing the language. They can't. Um, that the words are filled, as I said, the words are filled uh, to bursting, um, and you can't empty them out. Um, and this is also kind of a, a criticism of secular Zionist culture in general, right? Don't think that you can create a wholly secular, completely secular society here in Israel, because the language itself won't let you. The language has its own connotations and, and content. Um, so that, I mean, relates a little bit to your point. I want to show some of that in the examples on this other side of the page. Just yeah. a quick reference for those who don't speak Hebrew is that yeah. my daughter's in middle school and I read Shakespeare. Now they have books in Shakespeare on one side, it's old Shakespeare. Oh, okay. And it's retold and that it's the same in modern English now. So you can actually understand what the heck's going on in the play. Although, by reading it, then you wonder, are you missing things? So that would be a good example for those to go see kind of what's going on here. It was, it was very interesting to me to be able to read Shakespeare in English. In English, right. As but in but, well, so this, that's exactly the debate they had in the Israeli school system about you know, what, what richness of language are they losing if they skip straight to the, the modern translation. There are all kinds of tropes. So, right. so on one hand, the kids yeah. can actually understand the play. On the other hand, they're losing all of that that's in it. So it just reminds me exactly by reading these two. It's the same, it's an analogy. So you can put those on a piece of paper and people don't speak Hebrew. You'll, you'll see it in yourself. Very similar to reading these two. Yeah. Have they ever considered uh, in the beginning using Aramaic? Who? <laughs> the, the, oh, they. Yeah. Like when? In Jews coming back? Zionist, oh. Zionist. oh, because that was like one of the last a, spoken Jewish languages? It's continually, it's a continually living language because mm -hmm. there are Jews, you know, there are areas in the Levant. Or not in Levant, but in the yeah, I mean, more the Syrian Christians, and there are yeah, Aramaic is, is a spoken language among some peoples. Um, I don't think it was ever it was ever uh, seriously uh, considered because um, it's even it was even less relevant than Hebrew, I think, at the time. Uh, there were real contenders, by the way, to Hebrew. It wasn't obvious that Hebrew should be spoken. I mean, maybe I should emphasize that. What seems to be a fact taken for granted that, of course, Israel, the Jewish state, should be speaking Hebrew. Um, there were, first of all, the people who opposed it, who thought that um, not just Rosenzweig, who was not Orthodox, but the ultra-Orthodox, said the worst thing you could do is, 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 is it, would be, it would be profaning the Lashon HaKodesh, the, the Holy Tongue. Uh, but there were others who just didn't think it was practical. Herzl himself, in Alt-Neuland, uh, didn't envision them speaking Hebrew. He thought, they were, they were, why would they speak Hebrew? That's a backward Middle Eastern language. They should speak something cultured, like German. Um, uh, and he even wrote, he said, how can, we, how can you imagine a country speaking Hebrew? We don't even know enough to order a railway ticket in Hebrew. That was in you know, 1896 or something. Um, and, uh, and so it was a battle. It was a battle. There was, in fact, a, a, an event or a series of events called the Language Wars. Um, it was uh, right after World War I when um, a, a, or t t it began in the 20s, uh, two institutions were founded, one, institutions of higher learning. One was in Jerusalem, which became called the Hebrew University, because they, their expressed and chosen language of instruction was Hebrew. And the other was called the Technion, or originally the Technicum, um, where that was going to focus on the exact sciences. And they said, well, we can't, can't teach science in Hebrew. It has to be German, the language of exactitude and, and everything else. And so um, uh, uh, there, there, was, um, there was a big, a big Cultural conflict, cultural, to use a non Hebrew, non uh, English word, um, a, a, to fight against that decision. And there were boycotts and all kinds of things to force their hand, to convince them that they had to speak in Hebrew. And if they didn't have the words, they had to make them up. In other words, 
neologize, invent new words in order to be able to teach those subjects in Hebrew. And of course, they, that won. I mean, in other words, the, the, the case was pretty much settled once they got Hebrew into the kindergartens, once they convinced the professors at Technion to break their teeth teaching physics and math and things in Hebrew. Um, and so after that, it was a little bit more forgotten, but there was a time there where it was very much up in the air whether this project was going to succeed. One of the joys of learning to read Hebrew for Torah mm -hmm. is the alliteration, the uncertainty, the puns, the, the depth. Mm -hmm. And next week, some of us are going to read A Wandering Aramaic with My Father. Some of us are going to read Come and See How They Try to Destroy My Father. <laughs> right, right. The, uh, but you lose all the translation. You make all those decisions that are made for you. You lose that, that depth of uncertainty. Yeah, that, that, of course, is something to be emphasized whenever you read anything, whether it's five minutes. Oh, okay. I thought I had a little bit more. Um, okay, so I'll do, do a brief test. I'll stop the questions. I'll just present the other things. But yeah, uh, that Shakespeare edition and this Hebrew uh, Bible edition of two, every translation is an interpretation. There's no question. There's no, every translator has to make numerous choices in how they translate into the other language. And those, you know, sometimes create meanings and ambiguities, but sometimes shut them off. And, and, uh, and, and, and uh, uh, you know, when you say things are lost in translation, it's because, it's because of that. Okay, a brief look at the other side of the page. What I wanted to show is, um, with all these examples here, uh, I have the Hebrew word on, in the far left-hand column. And then I have uh, the second column is uh, the original, or usually biblical, or Talmudic, uh, context and meaning of that word. And then the third, the third column is what it means in contemporary Israeli Hebrew. So really briefly, if you only know biblical Hebrew, and you hear the words madim, ephod, korban, and miluim, then you think only about the priesthood, okay? Because the priests were the one who wore the priestly vestments, the madim. They had an ephod, which, right, with the, the, when you have, when you, just a few parashot ago, talked about in, in great detail all the, all the physical trappings of the priesthood. A, a korban was, of course, a, uh, you know, a sacrifice offered upon the altar. Uh, and the miluim was the, uh, literally means sort of filling in, and it was the ordination of, of uh, of groups of priests that uh, worked in, in sort of shifts. Um, if you're only, uh, if you speak only Israeli Hebrew, you hear these words, you only think of one thing. Those are, these are military words. These are words for that soldiers use. The madim are the uniform of the soldier. The afod is the battle vest, which has, um, you know, where you keep the clips of your gun and stuff. I was a year and a half in Israeli infantry, so I'm <laughs> intimately familiar with these. Um, and uh, korban in contemporary Israeli Hebrew means victim. Uh, also sacrifice, right? When you sacrifice something, uh, and, and, but not, you don't think about the temple cult and the altar. And the miluim, of course, is reserve duty. Um, and um, that's, this, again, I'm just giving you on sort of a, as we say in Hebrew, just on the tip of the fork, tip of the iceberg, of a whole range of examples of what happens when you use words that already existed, that have their own history, that have their own meaning, and you do it in a context of not only vernacularizing the language, but Re, but creating a culture that, is, first of all, dealing with different challenges, but also is trying to change the value system from a ancient, biblical, religious, um, a cultic kind of uh, context to a contemporary, secular, uh, political situation. And, um, and you use these words to express the meaning that the ones who are making the supreme sacrifice, the ones who are, are doing the, the avodah, right, in, in biblical Hebrew, which is service, right, it can be work, but also service, like avodat Hashem, avodat HaMikdash, so the ones who are doing the supreme service to the country are no longer people who are doing it in a priestly or religious context, but are the ones who are fighting on the battlefield. 
Um, uh, the same is, is with the other the other words in that uh, in that uh, column. Um, I, I want to get to uh, to one thing, which is one of my favorite stories here. Um, but the same is true. The second uh, the second row across is is the political realm, right? The idea that the parliament is called the Knesset, right? And we know that the Knesset is a synagogue, but the idea that the parliament should be the Knesset um, and that it resides in this beautiful building built by the Rothschild family, which is Mishkan HaKnesset, and the Mishkan is a tabernacle, but now it's the holy residence of those 120 parliamentarians, um, etc. There are a number of, of examples there. Um, my favorite example is, uh, is parasha. Okay, we all know what parasha tashavua is, right? When a bar mitzvah child learns their parasha, it's the weekly portion, right, of, of, uh, uh, of the Torah. But it also, um, uh, in modern Hebrew, um, it, uh, in contemporary Israeli Hebrew, it refers to... Um, because parashot in the Torah have stories and have all kinds of uh, tales, so it can mean a, a, a tale or an item in the news, and it can also, because of that, it can mean a scandal. Okay, so a parasha about something, could you, like you would say, if you were translating, you would say parashat Watergate. Okay, that, that's how you would use you would use the parasha. So, so there's a story told of a prime minister, and it could really have been any of the <laughs> recent prime ministers. It was actually Omar. Also, I'll mention Omar just because he actually is in jail, so we can say this about him. Uh, about Omar, who was at a public event, and a woman came up to him and uh, touched the hem of his coat and kissed her hand. And he was, like, taken aback. And he said, well, uh, ma'am, what's, what's the meaning of that gesture? And she, and she said, uh, oh, Prime Minister Omar, for me, you were like a Sefer Torah. And he said, oh, wow, that's, that's very flattering. Thank you. Why do you say that? And he said, because with you, every week, it's a new parasha. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I guess maybe Israelis are diglossic in the end, because if you get those uh, both sides of that story, then you know uh, what it's referring to. Um, that might be a good place to end. I can know there are a lot of... <laughs> A lot of other examples, I just want to point out what I put on the sheet for you, and this is going to be a lot of what's going to be in the book, is that there are these amazing examples that when you scratch a little bit under the surface, Leitzan, and any Israeli kid knows that a Leitzan is a clown, um, and if you learned um, uh, Tehillim, the book of Psalms, and the, the, the opening psalm, Moshav Leitzim, Al Teshev, right? A Leitzan is a scorner, um, and... Um, uh, a Kosem magician, like two Kosem, Leitan and Kosem, who you would invite to your kid's birthday party, were actually these very, very negative um, uh, uh, cultural, cultural types. Um, uh, and again, part of the Zionist revolution was taking all these images, in this case, specific words, and putting them in a completely new and secularized context, often going from negative to positive. Um, the idea, the word Hagshama, let me just finish with this. This is a nice thing. I always loved when I, I always knew the word ruach, um, right, which can mean wind, but also spirit. And, and in, um, in camp, we would say, oh, yeah, we've got ruach. Yes, we do. We've got ruach. How about you? You know, and have all these, you know, things with it. You know what they call, you know how you say that kind of ruach in, in, uh, in I learned this from my kids. We're in a youth movement. They said, oh, yeah, and then we, were, we did moralim. Morale, to raise the morale of the Jew. And I said, well, we call Ruach, you call morale. And when I lived in a collective housing situation in college, which we called a bait, my kids were living in a comuna. So there's a little bit of a, of a, um, a lot of continuity there, but uh, some changes. Anyway, so, um, so Ruach is spirit. And interestingly, so Ruchani means spiritual. And I, I was fascinated when I, I, I learned that a lot before I learned that the word for material or corporeal is gashmi, gashmiut. 
and you have ruach and geshem. Geshem is rain. So the ruach, the, like, so the physical oh. correlates of that ruach being wind, but also corresponding spirit. Whereas geshem, meaning rain, which is actual physical droplets, means the corporeality. So in in pre-modern Hebrew, Maimonides writes about this. The idea of hag shema would mean, if you know. Grammar, he feel causative. So to make something material, that's a sin. That's the idea of taking God and thinking of God in corporeal terms. If you're, if you're guilty of the sin of Hakshama, then you actually literally read that God's hand is, is a hand or that God has some kind of body or, or, or image. Hakshama in contemporary Hebrew, I was in a movement called Hamagshimim, because <laughs> it means to fulfill, right? to bring into fruition or into reality. Um, and it became a very positive thing. Um, yeah, so. So, to, to, so to kind of follow up. There are communities, and I think still in Israel, right? The ultra, the, the fundamentalist Orthodox. Haredim. Fundamentalist Orthodox, yeah. who speak only in Yiddish. Yes. yes. And so I can understand now better after this why they would possibly do this, because you can't live in a fundamentalist Orthodox world where you are so text-oriented and even understand or want to speak this Hebrew, because your chart shows how it, it is incredibly different and possibly offensive use certain words. I wonder if that is why a reason why they maybe do that in communities in New York and in Israel, or if that's just... Oh, it's you say New York, because I was on a, in returning to Israel from one of my previous trips, I, uh, I sat down next to a, a Haredi man, um, and uh, we started talking. He was, um, uh, no, I was actually coming, he was coming, I was coming to the States, he was coming back from Israel, because he lived, he just, I realized he lives in New York, and uh, he lives in New Square, oh. New York. And I said, oh, New Square. I know New Square. I just read this memoir, you know, Shalom Deen's All Go, Do Not Return, an amazing book about the Sverer Hasidim. And in fact, how they intentionally prevent them from learning English, for instance, so they can't integrate into it. So, oh, and then I realized I should really start a conversation with what he considered the complete heretic, right? So I started talking about, uh, his English was actually not bad, very heavily Yiddish accented. It reminds me of, like, grandparents and things, but um, he was, like, 18. And... Um, and I was curious because of this whole thing about Yiddish and Hebrew. And, um, uh, and uh, I said, um, so uh, he was there for a couple of weeks with a group. And, and, um, and I said, so what did you think of, um, of uh, like, what did you speak in, in, um, with people? And I said, oh, I, I, you know, I tried to speak what they spoke. It's, it's very similar to Lushan Kodesh. You know, Hebrew. The Hebrew they speak, it's very similar to this language that I know, which I call Lushan Kodesh. But, you know, so again, it's not... It's not exactly Hebrew. I mean, you, you mentioned the word offensive, so I'm just going to finish with one other story, hopefully not to offend anybody. We'll leave it on this note. This is actually a story taken from um, uh, Amos Oz's memoir, um, uh, uh, A Story of Love and Darkness, um, recently made into a film by Natalie Portman. This part of this is not in the film, so you have to read the book to get this story. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, the word Zion um, in Hebrew, okay? It's the name of the seventh letter. And uh, all Israelis know it also as the Hebrew word referring to the male sexual organ. Um, in the Bible, however, it's neither. It's not a, neither of those. It actually refers to a weapon. And there's a question of whether there's a connection between those two meanings. Probably not, actually, even though kind of a feminist reading would, would uh, uh, kind of suggest that. But so uh, clay zine would be some some form of weapon. And and lizayen, the verbal form, is to arm. Okay, so. Amos Oz tells the story of when he was about 10, he was taken by his father, who was a very, very strong, staunch revisionist, to hear Begin, Menachem Begin, uh, speak. And he was a, a, an amazing orator, and he could hold forth for, for hours. And he was talking about the political situation at the time, I think it was the early 50s, um, uh, maybe a little bit later, but it doesn't matter. But Begin, of course, 
product of some Eastern European Yiddish, uh, and so of course he spoke Israeli Hebrew, he was speaking to Israelis, but he was maybe a little bit old-fashioned in his Hebrew, and he wasn't aware that this word was, uh, was um, his, his semantic uh, meaning was, was actually in the process of shifting at that time. So, uh, so Begin um, a, was talking about the fact that there was an arms race between Israel and its surrounding countries, and uh, and he was claiming that the entire that many countries, many other countries, were arming the Arab countries. Okay, and to say that he used the word lizayen. Okay, which in contemporary Hebrew, if you understand what the noun form is, you can imagine what the verb form is. Okay, right? Uh, Stewing, basically. Um, and, and so, so Amos Oz is there, ten years old, and uh, with the sense of humor of you know a, a fourth grader, um, and uh, and he hears Bacon saying, you know. Um, and Begum was saying, everyone's arming the Arabs, who's arming us? Nobody's arming us. But of course, almost always heard, nobody is, uh, is doing that to us. So he burst out into laughter. His father was mortified, had to drag him out of the speech. And, and Hebrew has never been the same since. So. <laughs>